Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And joining us today, we have special guest. I'm just calling it. We have Madame Laquette joining us. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank Can you so much? Can you share with us, before we get into icebreakers, share with us how 2021 is going for you and how you've been taking care of yourself this year? Uh, 2021 has had, I mean, career-wise, I've had some really great things happening to me. I've had um, a book release, uh, Jackson, in February. I have an upcoming release, a very intimate takeover that's coming out in um, at the end of this month on September 28th. Um, I've signed a couple of contracts for a new couple of um, new books <laughs> that are going to be coming out next year sometime. Um, and so career-wise, it's been really good. Personally, you know, we live in a world that's kind of upside down right now. Mm-hmm. So um, I can, like, I've had to learn to sort of like decompress in in other ways. So like, I happen to love um, agenda covers for my planner. And I've bought some really pricey ones recently mm-hmm. because that has helped. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I, um, I try to do a lot of walking, although it's been kind of difficult this summer because I, I really don't like the heat. But before the summer came in, I would spend like an hour a day uh, walking in my neighborhood or I drive to the local track and walk or ride my bike. So I've kind of learned to do these things and just taking time for myself. Uh, I redecorated my office and I brought in a recliner so I could just lay down and sort of get, have some Zen moments, you know, when I'm not actually creating to sort of refill my well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you, you take it one day at a time um, and, you know, one foot in front of the other. And hopefully one day we'll get back to some nor- sense of normalcy. Let's get into some icebreaker questions. Mm-hmm. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? Lord, that mouth. <laughs> this is true. My husband looks at me and he's like, you know what? I just can't take you anywhere. Like, you can't, you can't come like, listen, you know who I am, you know how I am. No. <laughs> so that would be the disclaimer. <laughs> Love it. Yes. What was your first job? Well, in, in, I don't know if we have these things in, in other states, but growing up in New York, we had something called summer youth employment. Mm-hmm. So that's like at age 14, 15, you, you're working papers. And so I worked as a, a counselor in a summer um, day camp. But my real like official, official job was as a registered respiratory therapist at uh, Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. On your website, you write that writing has always been a, a friend and source of comfort. What's one of the first things you can remember writing? Well, again, the disclaimer being that mouth. Um, <laughs> that is not something that has developed, you know, over time. That has, I've always been like that. I just, I believe in speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a child growing up in a very strict household, um, it, it's not always... Um, it wasn't so much that I was speaking the truth, but the way I was speaking the truth. And I had not yet learned tact. And so, okay. <laughs> um, you know, coming out of my face the wrong way to my mama, 
One day she looked at me and she said, you would really better learn a better way of expressing yourself or else you're going to find yourself <laughs> off the floor. So, so because I knew that my mother was not joking, I, um, <laughs> I learned to write. I started writing my thoughts out a lot more mm -hmm. to sort of organize them first and get them out of my head so that I could see, okay, I can put this in a better way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that that's kind of how it all that whole writing bug started. It, I just got into the habit of always putting my thoughts on the page before actually speaking them. Well, shout out to mom for, you know, right? <laughs> everything that's come, you know, into fruition. I mean, mom jump started all of this. Yes. <laughs> we will take full credit for it too. She right. <laughs> If it wasn't for me, y'all wouldn't have these books. Right? <laughs> absolutely take full credit for it. And uh, yeah, she would. <laughs> you decide you want takeout for dinner. Where do you order from and what's your order? Well, I actually did order takeout tonight. And I ordered, <laughs> nice. um, <laughs> Friday nights are takeout here. So uh, I got the kids Little Caesars because they they think like that's their version of pizza. That's a Brooklyn slice to them. They don't really know any better. <laughs> but, um, and I bought Chinese food for myself. Mm. What's the best purchase you've treated yourself to this year? Uh, those those uh, agenda covers that I was telling you about a little bit earlier. They're gorgeous. I mean, vegan leather. Ooh, wow. Like, they're so pretty. And they feel nice. Nice. <laughs> What's one thing you find yourself nostalgic for? Oh man, um, I really am nostalgic for like family get-togethers, which mm -hmm. you know are really kind of difficult right now, considering mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, I'm used to always having my family around. Like even though I I live um, in in the Poconos now, and my family's still back in New York we make trips back and forth. Um, I would go up at least once a month and they would come over at least once a month. So we'd see each other at least two weekends out of the month. Um, but now because of the pandemic, it's not, you know, we, I can't have a bunch of people in the house at all. So. I live in Texas and most of my family's in Missouri mm -hmm. and we would get home usually like at least once a year it's a it's a long drive and it's honestly it's kind of expensive to travel home you know it, it's just like wow it it has not happened in yeah. a while you know right. and and Missouri back home the I mean the mask situation is crazy all over but I've just just from hearing family speak I'm like y'all y'all aren't up there wearing masks like I'm down here wearing masks <laughs> I'm like I'm gonna stay down here but it's well, like, I just, I would love to see my grandma again, you know, but yeah. It's just, it's I, I, I feel you on that. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that my, my, my mom and my, the rest of my family, like we're all pretty like mass compliant and we're all vaccinated. So mm -hmm. I do get to see at least my mother and my sister and my niece and nephew, but like larger family gatherings, like Thanksgiving is always at my house, yeah. you know, and we can't do that this yeah. year we couldn't do it last year we can't do it this year and um it's like that's the thing I miss I miss cooking for a large family because I don't want I don't like to cook on a day-to-day -day. let me not you know give you the impression that I'm actually Susie Homemaker and I'm actually <laughs> <in here. laughs> I'm not that is so not true there are days that it's just like my kids are like it's hot pockets again tonight ma yeah it is yes <laughs> 
that's my usual, right? But for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. everything that I don't cook during the year, I want it for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Comes I, out, I, right? I get some, I don't know, I get some sort of like, I, it's an emotional thing that I, I just have to do it and I want to do it and I, I get such joy from it. Uh, and then, you know, your family comes over and they're getting on your nerves, but it's still a wonderful, like, it's still an amazing situation. And I just kind of like, I, every year when they put out those, um, those, um, black people Thanksgiving memes that come out all over social media every year. Like, I love that because every one of my family members represents someone in those memes. And so (laughs) like, you know, and, and I, I, is as frustrating as it can be and as overwhelming as it can be to have all those folks in your house at one time and feed all those folks at one time and to cook for all those folks at one time, it's there's still this sort of bond that really happens when you get the opportunity to do that. And I haven't been able to do that for two years now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's been that's been one of the tough things giving up, like family gatherings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about it the other day. I was like I was so naive. I don't know what I was thinking. Pandemic. I assumed, oh, we'll all get vaccinated and wear masks and it'll go away. And it's like, yeah. that's not, I don't think that's how pandemics work. Yeah, no. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, but my, you know, my hope and my prayer is that soon we can, you know, find yeah. some sense of normalcy. I'm just waiting if you're listening, Pfizer and Moderna, please hurry up. Yeah. <laughs> Vaccines for these kids. It will help them and help me, please. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it will make my family happier. <laughs> so we love to hear romance origin stories. Can you share with us how you became a romance reader? Absolutely. Uh, I was a 16-year-old junior at Erasmus Hall High School in Flatbush, Brooklyn. And um, I was in an earth science class and my girlfriend, I would notice every day she'd come into class and she'd have these, what I now know to be Harlequin presents. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I looked at her and I was like, oh, why are you bringing these trashy books in here every day? <laughs> now, like five words, have you ever read one? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the best question ever asked. That's how it's yeah, it is. And and I I you know I couldn't say yeah. I was like no, I haven't. She was like, well, maybe you should actually read one before you pass judgment on it. So she gave me the book that she was actually reading, and I actually still have that copy of the book. It's called um, The Devil's Price by Charlotte, um, not Charlotte Lamb, excuse me, by Carol Mortimer, mm-hmm. and. I took that book home and read it in a night. I devoured it. It was so good and so amazing. And I went back the next day and I was clamoring for more. So she gave me the next book until I literally just exhausted her her personal (laughs) library. And then she was like, I got to cut you off now because I don't have any more. So you're either going to have to buy your own or you're going to have to go to the library. I I would not lie to you. I didn't even have a library card at that point. I went and got one (laughs) just so I could read books. And I would go, I would take the B35 bus home every day. And the B35 stopped right on um, 98th Street and Rockaway Boulevard. And there was a satellite um, New York Public Library there, a little small satellite library. And I would go there every day after school and 
get a bag full of books and then go home and devour them. And every time I would come back, the librarian would, you know, look at me like I was crazy. She's like, weren't you here just yesterday? How'd you read all those books between yesterday and today? And I'm like, cause they're good and I love them. So that is how I really just became a romance reader addict. What was it about that first one? So it's yeah. called The Devil's Price, right? The Devil's yeah. Price? The Devil's Price. Um, I, I will tell you, like, if you're going to read books from 1980 something, you cannot <laughs> read them with yep. today's sensibilities, right? You okay. Accept them for what they were <laughs> and the times for which they were written. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, it was the the angst. It was the passion. It was the... I am so mad with myself for being in love with you that I'm going to be mad at you. (laughs) It's, you know, and we might call that toxic now, but whatever. Mm -hmm. It was sexy back then to a 16 year old. So so I was just like, oh my God, it was, and also the drama, like, um, Mm -hmm. I, I love a good dramatic story. Um, and so it, it just, it spoke to a lot of my id at that point in my life. And I, I devoured them for about two years straight after that. At what point did you decide to uh, pursue writing professionally? And what did the world of romance look like at the time? I knew I wanted to write. I, I did not think that I would be able to sustain my my way of living mm-hmm. on a writer's, you know, income. So, and because I, I didn't think it that, I didn't really know much about self-publishing. I didn't, you know, from my perspective at that time, the only thing that was really out there was the trad market. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't think that there was really a space for me in the trad market because I wasn't really writing what was in the trad, what I was seeing in the trad market. Um, and I had gone to school I'd actually gone to school to learn to write genre fiction. And I was just taking a couple of English classes at that point to kind of like strengthen my skills. And those couple of English classes eventually turned into an actual creative writing degree. And, um, and then after that, my, uh, one of my professors, he encouraged me to go ahead and get my master's degree. He actually encouraged me to get my doctorate, but I was like, that's too much schooling. I can't do all of that. So he's like, all right, at least go get your master's. And he's like, you can teach, you can do all these other sorts of things with it. And I'm like, okay, great. So I went in and got, um, I signed, I enrolled in a master's degree program at Queens College in creative writing. Did all of that. And by the time I was done, I was just tired of writing what everyone else was telling me to write because Mm -hmm. if when you go to an English program, you spend a lot of time writing about literature. You know, not actually writing literature, but about it. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I just wanted to. I just really wanted to write something that had nothing to do with the analytical side of of um, literature. And I just wanted to write something fun. And so I wrote this story uh, that would eventually become my first published novel, self-published novel. Um, It was called My Beginning. And it was just something that I was just doing for my own self. I had no intention of actually publishing it. Mm -hmm. And my husband, I would come home every day after work. And because I was still working as a respiratory therapist while I was, you know, putting myself through school and all that. And I would come home from work and 
this would just be kind of like how I decompressed. I would sit down and start writing. And so my husband wanted to know what I was writing because I was doing this like every day. <laughs> yeah. so like, like everything you're doing, like I, I can I at least see it? So I probably got about halfway through the novel um, when we discovered I was pregnant with our first son. And so I had no, uh, I kind of just lost interest in writing at that point because when you're growing a human, it can be kind of tiring. And so I didn't really have a focus for it anymore. But he took, and and this is how much this man loves me. This is love right here, what I'm about to tell you. He, we didn't have, at, at that point, I don't think like digital documents were big. We're talking like 2009, right? So digital documents in, in the way we tr- use them now on our phones and the like weren't really that big yet. I printed out ha- this manuscript, like half of the book at this point on regular printer paper, punched holes in it and put binder rings on it. And that man took that half of a manuscript to work with him every morning on the train and read it going to work and coming back to work. <laughs> yeah. And he got to the halfway point and he came home and he's like, where's the rest of it? Like, mm-hmm. I'm really interested. I'm invested in this story now. I want to mm-hmm. see what, what's going on. But at that point I was pregnant and, you know, I was pr- probably still in the first trimester, almost going into my second, but I was pretty exhausted. So I was like, dude, that's not happening right now. And once the baby was born, of course, you get caught up in everything. And by that time, um, not long after my son was born, I started working as a college professor teaching um, writing and um, literature. And he he was like, you're getting caught up so much in this that you're not doing what the very, you're not taking care of the very gift that God gave you. Like, I don't believe God gave you this talent, this desire to teach English classes. <laughs> like, yeah. But in my head, I was thinking of the practical application of English, right? So mm-hmm. having writing degrees, what's the practical application for that? The practical application is you teach. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what, what I did. And he would constantly like get at me every time he would, you know, see me, every time I would be, you know, upset at how many papers I had to grade or dealing with, a chair in my department, something like that. He was just like, well, you know, you could be doing what you're really meant to be doing, which is writing, but you know, you don't have the guts for that. So. Oh no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's that tough love. It is. And I was like, okay, so who do you think you're talking to? Like, <laughs> like I don't know. When you got this bold and brave to come at me like this, but you know, he he understood that as that one of the things that I'm a driven person, and if you tell me I can't do something, you better be ready to see me give it my all to try to do it. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no motivation for me like telling me I can't do something. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I sat down and I started writing, and um, I put my beginning out. And of course it didn't do well because I knew absolutely nothing about the publishing industry. I knew absolutely nothing about the indie side of the publishing industry. I just put a book up on Amazon. But what it did was it helped me connect to other authors on like social media. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, there was, God bless the dead. There was an, um, 
a gay romance author by the name of Piper Kay. And she and I had become like pretty chummy. And um, she said to me, listen, my publisher, it was a small press by the name of Hot Ink Press. And she's like, my publisher is looking for multicultural romance. You know, you should try to submit something. And I was like, oh, I had a lot of like reservations because I had a lot of misconceptions about, you know, publishers stealing your work and stuff like that. Um, and I just, I was really leery of it, but she, you know, she really vouched for this woman. And so I said, okay, I'll try it. Um, she gave it to her. And about three weeks later, um, her name was Sarah Davis Brandon, I think. Um, she called Piper up and said, Hey, tell your friend, I'm going to be contacting her because I love this story and I want to put it out. And that story was Heart of the Matter. And that's probably one of my my most popular stories. It's an interracial romance. And um, people liked it. <laughs> they really liked it. And um, they liked it so much that I actually wound up writing five books in that series, not because I actually wanted to, but because the readership just couldn't get enough of that couple. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I did that. And, and then after I did that... Um, I, I wanted to sort of try my hand at traditional and, um, and sort of spread my wings and, and do some different things. And, um, I started, uh, I, I had an interaction with the woman that would become my agent later on, um, Latoya Smith. Uh, but at that time when I met her, she was an editor for Sam Hain and she, we were both at the um, Moonlight and Magnolias conference um, for the Georgia Romance Writers of America. And she was taking pitches in another room, but I never bothered with pitches or anything like that because again, in my head, it was like, I'm not jumping through hoops for these folks because they're not looking, they're not checking for what I'm, what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm writing people that are actually from Brooklyn. I'm writing code switching. I'm, I'm writing, you know, real folks that I know. This industry is not really looking for that. I was doing something or another. I was at some sort of like showcase and she walks in and she says, she introduces herself and tells me, um, I'm Latoya. I'm an editor at Sam Hain and I've been waiting for you to come see me. And I said, uh, how? Because I know I don't have an appointment with you. <laughs> <laughs> I know I Am I missing time. something? Did we did we set something up and I forgot? Because <laughs> he's like, uh, well, I'm looking. You know, part of my job at Sam Hain is not just to acquire books, but also to diversify their author stable. So I'm looking to bring in more multicultural authors. More, um, you know, just come tell me what you're working on. What you're working on, and we talked and and for a bit. And I, I was actually working on something and I told her it was going to take me probably like another five to six weeks to finish it. And it did. But just as I finished it and was ready to send it to her, Sam Hain announced that they were closing. Oh, <laughs> so I was like, no. damn it. <laughs> so I had this book and I'm like, well, the book is done. At least let me see if I can, you know, send it out myself. So I submitted it to like every, every publisher, every e-press that I could find that had a romance imprint. 
And um, I got a call back from the now defunct Lucid. And I, I said, okay, they gave me, they wanted to give me a deal. So I contacted Latoya. And at that time she had become, she had transitioned to becoming an agent. I was like, listen, I have this offer of a deal. I don't really know enough about publishing to really make decisions about whether this is a good deal or not. I would like representation. Are you, are you interested in representing me? So she was like, well, let me, let me read the project and, you know, see what it is. So she read it. She enjoyed it. That book became Lies You Tell. And, um, she signed on as my, my agent and we put that book out through with loose it. And we literally, like, we just, we gelled. We're both from Brooklyn. We both just, you know, she understood this industry in a way that, in a way that I needed her to understand as being a black woman and trying to break through that glass ceiling. She understood that from the editor perspective of being a black editor who had worked in all of the, the major publishing houses. Mm-hmm. We, knowing where we each came from, knowing what our perspectives were, we worked really well together. The plan was, listen, we're going to keep working until we push, until we get to where we want to be. And um, for a while there, it didn't really look like much was going to come of it, right? It, it, like everything she tried to sell of mine, nothing worked. And I think after RWA 2019, when I, I gave a speech about publishing, literally leaving money on the table by by not diversifying their author stables. And after that, she could not, she could not field all of the calls that she was getting. Wow. Everyone yeah, wanted awesome. to, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to send me of hers? What are you going to send me of hers? And the first contract we got was with, um, probably was, I think maybe six months before, which was source books, Casablanca, which the book, um, the Restoration Rant series, the first book, Jackson, having come out in February. And then after the speech, um, I connected, well, Latoya first connected with um, Charles Greensman from Harlequin, mm-hmm. who he contacted her and said, hey, I want to talk to you about some of your authors possibly submitting to me. And she, like Latoya and I already knew that I would never submit to Harlequin because I just wasn't Again, I was very much, this is what I write. I'm not changing it. And if it's not going to fit into your model, I'm not really wasting my energy on you. Yeah. And from everything, I hadn't, you got to understand, I hadn't read a Harlequin category, series category for like 25 years. Mm-hmm. So everything, everything I knew or thought I knew about Harlequin. Was 16 year old you. Was 16 yeah. to 18 year old me. Yeah. Because 18 year old me stopped reading them because I didn't see me on the pages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was still my impression. I was like, oh, I don't have time for that. Like, I'm not doing that. So <laughs> she's telling him about all of these authors that she thinks would be good, a good fit for him. And he's like, yeah, 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 that's nice. But what about Laquette? <laughs> and she was like, ooh, um, good luck with that one. <laughs> she was like, 
I will talk to her and, you know, have her uh, get in contact with you. So Latoya, like I said, she knows how to talk to me. She knows how to manage me because that's her job. (laughs) She she calls me up and she's like, hey, so I want us to meet at RWA. Let's have lunch. Let's make a plan. Let's figure out this networking thing. How are we going to do it? I'm like, okay, bet we could do it. So we go to this lunch. She's talking to me. We're having a good time. And she's like, oh, by the way, (laughs) Um, a lovely gentleman by the name of Charles (laughs) from Harlequin wants you to submit. And I remember looking her dead in her face and I'm like, for what? (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like to submit so that he could possibly acquire you. And again, my response was, for what? And she's like, LaQuette, don't start. I'm like, come on, Latoya. You know, doggone well, Harlequin ain't publishing what I'm writing. Like, yeah. It's kind of an exercise and frustration. I don't want to be bothered. I don't have, if it's going to raise my blood pressure, I don't have time for it. Mm-hmm. So she calmed me down and she says, listen, he's going to be at this event tomorrow. Go meet him. Go talk to him. If it... You know, if you feel good about it, talk some more about it and we can work something out. If it's not something you're interested in after you talk to him, then we'll, I'll never mention it to you again. So just go talk to him. She basically said, be nice. Yeah. Yes, she did say that. She was like, and be nice. <laughs> like, okay. So I go and I meet him. Harlequin was having some sort of an event and I met him and, um, and hit the assistant um, editor, Aaron Toma at that time. And we had a quick little chat, but it was an event. So he couldn't really like spend time really talking to me. So he says, listen, can I talk to, can I give you a call next week? And we can like really sort of, you know, really delve into this conversation. So we exchanged numbers and he, um, he messages me about the time or something that we're going to meet. And I, I, in that message, I said to him, I'm really flattered about all this, but I have to tell you that I have serious concerns. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I really feel like my voice is too black and too Brooklyn for Harlequin, for Harlequin desire. And I don't really know, like, I just don't want this to end up being something where it's going to be an exercise in frustration. And he says, well, I read under his protection. Mm-hmm. And although that book is much hotter then he's like, you might have to tone down the heat just a little bit and you and the profanity because, you know, <laughs> my, my characters just have potty now. Um, he says, but your voice is perfect for yeah. um, mm-hmm. desire. I think you do categories very well. Are you sure you want to have this conversation? So I'm like, at that point, like all before that, I was just being nice and entertaining him. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> You can but, hear Latoya in the background. Be yeah, nice. Be nice. Be nice. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do that. But but once he told me he actually had read under He read your book. Nice. And, and he had done this before we had this conversation. Like before he knew he was going to talk to me, he read that book. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like this, if this man has gone through the bother of doing this sort of research then at least I can do, the least I can do is have a conversation with him to see, mm-hmm. you know, what this is all about. So he called me up and we talked and, you know, I, I did reiterate my concerns and I, you know, I told him point blank that I had no intention of watering down my voice to fit into this line. So if they wanted, if Harlequin wanted me, they were going to have to take me as I was. 
Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, oh, absolutely. So he says, well, you know, I think he thought because a lot of my work has been romantic suspense. He was like, oh, well, I can, if you have anything, I can pass something on to or put you in contact with someone from the romantic suspense line. And I'm like, dude, you just did all of this work to talk to me and get me interested in possibly thinking about submitting and you don't want my work? Like, what do you want to read? And he's like, oh, you you wouldn't mind writing for Desire? I'm like, yeah, if you're putting this much effort into trying to convince me, mm-hmm. then yeah, you're the editor I actually want to work with. And so I asked him what he wanted to, what he wanted to read. And he said he wanted to read about an affluent Black family from, um, from Brooklyn, where there's lots of drama and all of that. And I said to him, so you want me to write Black Dynasty set in Brooklyn? And he said, actually, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to write. <laughs> <laughs> now we're on the same page. We're on yeah, the same page. Like, okay. Oh, I, I can do that. That's right up my alley. Like, <laughs> I can do that. And within two days, I contacted him and I said, "I listen, the proposal is done. I just need to know what your submission requirements are. Do you want chapters? Do you do you need a synopsis? Synopses are evil. So if you need a synopsis, it's probably going to take me a couple more weeks, but I have your proposal done now. And he says, but I just spoke to you two days ago. I was like, yeah, but I finished it. It's great. You're going to love it. <laughs> and I don't think he believed me. So he called my agent. <laughs> and he said, so I talked to Laquette and she said that she's finished with the proposal. She just wanted to know if I had any additional submission requirements. And she's, he's like, is she really finished with it? She's like, yes. And I read it and it's fabulous. You're going to love it. And he said, but I just spoke to her two days ago. She says, yes, that's Laquette. If you ask her to do something, she's going to be on task. Like you're going to get what she promises you. And so um, we turned that in and he he loved it, like he absolutely, which became the Devereaux Ink series, and he absolutely adored it. He was just like, "I this is this is a Harlequin story, and I can't wait for you know it to be into the world." So that's how I ended up at Harlequin because of a very persistent and kind gentleman <laughs> by the name of Charles Greenspan. In the dedication. And, and, yes. and my agent knowing me and telling me to behave. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm writing for Harlequin. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I love it. He is just a dream of the podcast because, I mean, he's a big deal editor. I mean, some of our favorite books that we've read this year, he yeah. has edited them. Yeah. And I'm, it's Reese Ryan and shout out to Reese Ryan because he mentioned to her, I would love to, you know, Charles is from Brooklyn. And so he's, he, I guess he was having a conversation with Reese one day about how he hates when people who don't live in New York or Brooklyn try to write about it. And because they always get it wrong. He says, I'd really love for an author, um, you know, to write, uh, write me a story about Brooklyn. And Reese said to him, well, there's this author by the name of, <laughs> But she's from Brooklyn. You might want to try to find her. So shout out to Reese. Thank you for whispering my name. I know. (laughs) This year you've had Jackson, which you've mentioned, published Mm -hmm. with Sourcebooks Casablanca, Mm -hmm. Under His Protection, which, did you re-release that? Yes, that's a Um, re-release. It was released originally two years prior under a publisher who shall not be named. Okay. And... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and 
that that situation didn't work out well. So uh, I got my rights back and then I republished it myself. Okay. Okay. That's what I, I we're learning about the whole rights back. And sometimes you'll <laughs> yeah. see a book and it has a different cover and we're learning now they probably got their rights back and, and put it back out. So, okay. Yeah. We, we have that one. And then we have books one and two yeah. in the new Devereaux Inc. series with Harlequin yes. Desire. So let's begin with Jackson, which is mm-hmm. book one in your Restoration Rant series. Uh, yeah. Can you share with us how writing with source books came to be and how this story came to you? Jackson is a very gorgeous cover. Let me oh, just say. He, he is. That is. Shout out to source books for that cover because that cover <laughs> is gorgeous. Um, I, I often just pet it because it's gorgeous. <laughs> um, I was a member of RWA NYC Kat Klein and Mary Altman, who were um, who were uh, editors for Source uh, at the time, they came to the chapter to you know talk about things that editors talk to at you know events like this, and um, you know they were talking about what they're looking for and you know the kinds of stories they want, and I I had just read a cowboy story and. I read it and it didn't really do what I wanted it to do for me. So I'm the type of person, if I read something and it didn't work for me, I want to write it the way I want it. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea about a, you know, cause I'm from Brooklyn and we don't, you know, although we, there are, there were, there used to be um, a ranch, uh, like a horse ranch right on the border of Queens and Brooklyn where the, um, I think they were like the Federation of Black Cowboys at the time used to have a ranch there but outside of that I didn't really know much about cowboys but um I wanted to write about a a woman who was a powerful like she had a powerful profession but decided she wanted to go back to her family's ancestral home and rebuild it as she was rebuilding herself because she was suffering from some emotional trauma in her life and her 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 way of rebuilding herself and getting a second chance for herself was to give se- second chances to everyone else. Okay. So Restoration Ranch became this place where everyone could get a second chance, no matter how bad your life was before. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Jackson is a Texas Ranger who is you know there are some things happening on the ranch too that you know puts Asia the heroine in danger. And so Jackson being the Texas Ranger that he is, is going to be assigned to it to help figure out what's going on and to protect her. But through that, through that exchange, through the time he spends with her, it's not just about protection. She actually helps him heal from his, some very serious um, traumas of his own. And so I love the idea of writing something like that and source a cat and Mary were all excited about it and um they they acquired it wow under his protection is a romance between camden and elijah can you talk about writing their story and where the idea for their romance came from um as with many of my books um regardless of whether it's it's male male or straight romance i my goal is always to normalize the presence of black joy Mm-hmm. So any place where I see that there's not necessarily the normalization of black people being in that space, 
I want to write that. So um, I was, a, uh, I still am uh, an avid reader of male, male romance. And, um, but at the time where I was just kind of learning about gay romance and, and um, reading it, there weren't a lot of men of color getting stories about their happily ever after. And so I had this idea that I wanted to write about this happy gay black man whose family adored him, um, having like a second chance romance with a, a hookup from five years ago that is going to become the love of his life. Yeah. Hmm. And um, that's, that's literally where Camden and Elijah's story came from. Okay, so now we have to chat Devereaux Inc., which, as you put in your dear reader in um, a very intimate takeover, is a little taste of Brooklyn luxury paired with power and passion. Amen. That is exactly what it is. So <laughs> please. Um... Yeah, I wasn't lying. I'm glad you used your <laughs> okay, so you had the conversation with Charles. You knew what he wanted. Okay, y'all get off the phone. What do you do? How does this story mm -hmm. come to you? Well, because I was doing what I what I termed as Black Dynasty set in Brooklyn, I of course I had to like go back to the source material. And one of the things that I always loved was um, the story of how the late Diane Carroll actually ended up on Dynasty on the actual television show. The story was that. She somehow had some interaction with Aaron Spelling, who I believe was like one of the show's producers or executives, something of that nature, creators. And she told him, it's time for you to have a Black person on this show. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, it's time. <laughs> and I guess you're great. Um, and then they talked about how they were going to do it. And she was like, if you were going to put a Black woman on this show, she can't be a maid. She can't be, you know, anyone of a lesser class than the Carringtons and the Colbys. She's got to have as much money, power, and influence as they have. And that's how Dominique Devereaux was born. Dominique, I just remember her presence. She was so fierce on that show. Like, she out Alexis, Alexis. Like, she... <laughs> like, Alexis could not do... I just remember how frustrating, um, like... She was for Alexis what Alexis was for Crystal. And it was a joy watching her terrorize Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just love the soap opera talk. It's so dramatic right? and good and fabulous. It is. So I absolutely adored it. And I was like, I, and I think Miss um, Carol had passed away like within a year or two years of this conversation. And so I was like, well, I want to pay homage to her because she um, she literally is quoted as saying she wanted to be the first black bitch on television. And nice. she was. I thought about that, her role and her character and what a boss she was and st how strategic she was. And, you know, and I, I was like, I want to write that kind of character. Right. Um, and of course, the name Devereaux, it 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 was it was an homage to, to that character. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I want a story about a Devereaux family and a woman especially who is a boss and willing to do anything to get what she wants. Because oftentimes we, we get the male 
CEO who is mm-hmm. willing to do whatever he needs to make his business su- succeed. I wanted to do like a gender swap sort of situation where it was the heroine who was all in and and willing to make some very possibly questionable decisions with respect to ethics and mm-hmm. whether she should actually be doing these things. Um, and that's how that story was born. I just wanted to create a badass heroine who would, you know, kick ass and take names in the boardroom. I feel like Jordan, AKA Trey, she is <laughs> the, she's the heroine we all need as women in 2021. <laughs> Jeremiah is like, he says, you're a dangerous woman. And she's like, we've already established that Jeremiah. <laughs> I was like, you're saying it. She's fabulous. And she, she, she owns everything she is good, bad, ugly. She owns it. And, mm-hmm. and it, it throws Jeremiah off his game. Like he knows he shouldn't trust her. Um, mm-hmm. And for very good reason, he knows he shouldn't trust her, but <laughs> so like, you know, she just pulls him in, draws him in because her flame is so bright. Yeah. He can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. The relationship between Jordan and Jordan and Jeremiah is intense from the beginning. The physical attraction is there. But with the setup, they read initially as two people who you couldn't believe would find love, but can't stop reading because you must know how you pull it off. Mm-hmm. You do so much in so little time. Can you talk a little bit about creating a very intense atmosphere and the intensity between the characters in the book's beginning? Because, yes, intense is definitely the word. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, you got you to gotta really raise the stakes, right? So how do you raise right. the stakes? There needs to be a dying patriarch or matriarch Mm -hmm. sad to say it but it's true right someone's life has to be on the line because when someone's life is on the line then you do things that aren't necessarily the expected things you know Mm -hmm. they're the guardrails kind of fall off at that point trey had a, a grudge to to sort of avenge her father had been really mistreated by her grandfather like she has when she doesn't meet her grandfather until you know, she goes in to sort of, quote unquote, help save the business. She's a 30 something year old woman at this point, meeting yeah. her grandfather for the first time. So her father and her grandfather have been estranged for all her life since before she was born. And she's only ever heard about her grandfather through her father's anger. And basically he made him out to be this pretty much demon and yeah. vilified him um, for most of her life. So she walks into this dying man's life with a lot of anger and resentment. And she's determined that before he leaves this world, she's going to snatch everything he loved to pay him back for everything, every wrong he did against mm-hmm. her father. So when you have those sorts of, I mean, the, nobody, no one can annoy you, anger you the most more than family. No mm-hmm. one has that ability to do that. And so I knew that it had to be a situation where there's a lot of family hurt. There's a lot of family miscommunication. um, There's a lot of family anger in order to make these, to raise these stakes to the point where she really has to make a decision, not just the decision about the company, but also the decision about whether she's going to forfeit her father's trust because she's, not just falling in love with Jeremiah, but also the grandfather she never knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So 
it's an impossible situation. And the more you put your characters in an impossible situation, the more emotion, the more drama that's naturally sort of peppered throughout the story. Yeah, the book has, it'll have you on the, you're on the edge of your seat the entire freaking time. Yep. (laughs) I mean, like from page one, when she's like talking to her dad, it's just, it's so, because she's such a daddy's girl, you could just tell Mm -hmm. she's a daddy's girl and she Mm -hmm. wants his approval, but you know, but she also like holds her own, even with her dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like dad, I know I gave you a spare key to my apartment, but that doesn't mean you can just show up. (laughs) What are you doing here in that don't roll up in my house <laughs> without calling first. <laughs> right. So we love that Jordan has the same name as her father and grandfather. Mm-hmm. So she's not what Jeremiah was expecting when they meet. So what nope. inspired the choice to have her be Jordan Dylan Devereaux III? Well, it's a power thing. There's a, there's a number of things. So in Black culture, names are very important. To name your your child is to imbue them with power. And so when you, when you name a, a person, place, or a thing, you, you give it power. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted her, what's the most powerful thing that we can have in a name, a generational name, especially if it comes from someone who does actually have power in the real world. And as billionaires in this company, Devereaux Inc., they definitely do have that kind of life-changing power. Mm-hmm. So... I wanted to name, I wanted her to ha- be able to rightfully tap into that legacy and have it be expected that she, she tap into that legacy. Not that, oh, she, you know, she, she ended up getting it by default or because someone else wasn't in line or what have you. I wanted it to be the expectation. I wanted her father to groom her from birth mm-hmm. to be the powerful driven person that she ends up being. The book is an intensely beautiful exploration into the business and family. Was there anything about Trey and Jeremiah's Jeremiah's romance that you hoped would resonate with readers? One of the things I love about Trey and Jeremiah, and it's probably, it's a reflection of my own relationship with my husband. I'm a very driven person. I'm a very independent person. Um, but my husband understands how to take care of me. He understands, Mm -hmm. he knows the signs when I'm, you know, when I'm tipping over too far, he knows when he needs to support me. He knows when he needs to back off. And I've never felt that I couldn't handle something without him by my side, because I knew he was going to have my back. And I wanted, oftentimes when you're a very strong person, or at least appear strong to the, you know, outwardly and people make that assumption about you, they treat you like you don't hurt like other people hurt. Mm -hmm. You can find yourself, you know, that whole strong black woman lie that, you know, people want us to buy into. It can lead you to sacrificing your own health, your own mental health, because you have been groomed to believe that you have to carry the world on your shoulders. And I wanted Trey to be this powerhouse, independent woman who, even though she was, because sometimes when we write heroines, if they're of the powerhouse, they can't have love, right? Because they, mm-hmm. they're too busy into their work. I wanted a woman who could have it all. 
I I didn't see why she couldn't. Like she could be a driven CEO and still have a partner who knew how to take care of her in her vulnerability, but also knew how to support and encourage her. And so that is that is why their relationship is built that way. Because Jeremiah is a boss unto himself, but mm-hmm. he's okay. He's secure enough in his manhood that he doesn't need to diminish Trey's glow in order mm-hmm. to step into his own shine. Yeah. Well, let's get into some writing questions. Mm-hmm. Early bird or night owl? What time well, of day do you feel most productive with writing? <laughs> so what had happened was, um, <laughs> okay, I am right now, I will say that the most productive I am is at 5 a.m. I call it 5 a.m. Writers Club. Okay. Um, and when I am in a crunch of a deadline like I am now, I'm up every morning at 5 o'clock writing because my kids and my husband are still asleep. The house is quiet. It actually feels like I'm alone in the house. Mm-hmm. And um, psychologically, I don't know if it's because I haven't yet started thinking about the rest of the day or what I have to do, or if it's just because I'm still half asleep and maybe dreaming, but the words seem to flow so easily. I'm so much more productive. Now the kicker is I hate doing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I absolutely do not want to be up at five o'clock in the morning, but it really is the most productive time for me to write. So when I'm in a crunch, especially I, I get my butt up. Um, Thank you, Christy Caldwell for being my writing partner. And she gets up with me at five o'clock in the morning, Monday through Friday, so we can get our words in. Yeah. Now that's friendship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I, I love that because there's like always these like YouTube videos of people. Oh, I got up at five o'clock every day and it didn't really do anything. But you know what? Like I'm the same way. I hate getting up at five o'clock, <laughs> yep. but that is my time to either go for a run or that's when I do my schoolwork. And it's like, I hate it, but that is literally the <laughs> mm-hmm. most productive time. It's so peaceful. My kids aren't bothering me. My phone isn't ringing yet. Mm-hmm. It's it doesn't feel like work at that point like it mm-hmm. literally, yeah. literally the word the words kind of pour out of me so I get exactly what you're saying are you a plotter or a pantser I am naturally a pantser right okay. but what had happened was Harlequin requires synopses that you right Mr. Charles knows what yeah. he he needs okay That's right. so even though I have a contract for x amount of books Every time you get, before you can start actually writing those books, you have to send them a synopsis because they want to see what you're thinking with respect to the story and how the, what, you know, how the entire story will unfold. And um, so I have to like think, I actually, it forces me to think about my story in ways that I probably hadn't before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it forces me to tell a much tighter story course, which is definitely something that's needed when you're writing 50K because I'm naturally long-winded. And so mm-hmm. it's hard for me to write a 50K book. Uh, I'm getting much better at it, thanks to Charles, but mm-hmm. um, that's what synopses do. But I have sort of become a plotter um, working with him um, because of that. Okay. Okay. So if it's a project you've already been working on, do you reread over the previous day's work before beginning? 
not the whole thing. I just read to get enough of a, an understanding of where I'm going. Cause I don't always like, I can't, I write 2000 words a day. And so okay. sometimes that means I'm finishing in the middle of a chapter. Okay. So, you know, if I were writing a whole chapter every time I sat down, then it might be a little bit different, but I'll just read like a few paragraphs before where I stopped, where I'm going to mm-hmm. begin again for the day just to get a sense of what the emotion is that I'm supposed to be conveying. And I'll glance at the synopsis to be able to make sure I understand the plot points. Mm-hmm. And that's how I start my day. Are there any necessities you need around you while writing? Coffee. Yes. I can't function without it. I am an <laughs> addict. I, I mean, at five o'clock in the morning, you get a pass. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, and my text to Christy every morning is, getting coffee now (laughs) so she knows I'm on my way to the to my my desk (laughs) okay you said you do 2,000 words a day what kind of how did you figure out that's your 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 writing goal well before the pandemic when I had six hours a day to write because my kids were in school I really could write more than that like I literally could finish a novel in about four to six weeks But of course, that is not the case now because my kids are homeschooling and have been homeschooling since the pandemic started last year. It has really cut into my productivity as well as um, my focus and my ability to just zone out and get into the work. So because of that, I know that I, I, my calculation is basically, I don't want to have to write every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I sort of look at when my due dates are, how many goof off days a week I want to have. <laughs> and that's how I figure out the calculation of how long okay. it's going to take me to write this novel and how many words I need to write a day. I don't generally try to write more than 20, it's 2000 is my minimum, right? So if it's more great, it can mm-hmm. be less. Okay. Because okay. I know if it's less, then it's going to be harder to keep that due date. So I do try to stick to it. Sometimes I can't always because life happens and I, you know, other things going are going on that may take my, you know, take the priority in, in you know, over my writing. Mm-hmm. But generally, I know if I can write 2000 words a day, then I can probably finish this novel in about no more than three months. Okay. Are there any specific programs you use to write? Yes. Scrivener is life. Yes. Uh, it is life. I don't even understand how I wrote before I started using Scrivener. I stopped using Word about, I want to say, three years ago because the night I was actually preparing my, um, my proposal, my chapters, for submission for Jackson, what became Jackson, Word 8, three chapters. Oh, gosh. That I was submitting. And the fortunate thing is that um, I always read my work. I read my work as I'm writing it. And as long as I have read it, I can reproduce it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if if I hadn't read it, I would have been SLL. Like, it would have been a totally different Mm -hmm. story. I had to stay up all night long, rewriting that thing to get it in my agent's hands the next morning, Um, which actually probably was kind of good because 
while she was, you know, because it ended up going to auction. And while that was sort of happening, she had several people asking for it, bidding on it. And while that was happening, like if I were awake, I would have been beside myself while that was going on. So I was pretty much comatose until (laughs) that (laughs) afternoon because I had been up all night long um, rewriting everything Mm -hmm. that Word had eaten. So mm-hmm. after that, um, I knew that there was a really steep learning curve to Scrivener and I'd never really wanted to use it um, before that. I tried it once when I had a PC and it just, I couldn't do it. It was just too much. But um, I went on to YouTube and started looking at some videos of, you know, to figure out what I needed Scrivener for. And I think that's the key because Scrivener can do a lot. It has a lot yeah. of functionality, but you will go, you know, you will really really just frustrate yourself if you try to learn everything that and and become adept at everything that Scrivener does. Some people may be able to do it. It didn't work that way for me. I had to figure out how to use it just as a word processor. And that once I figured out just how to use it for that, it became the easiest thing in the world for me to use. So I adore it because I'm a, you know, I'm a Mac girl. I'm yes, I have signed on to the Borg. Um, (laughs) and the the thing is with apple products like with scrivener only has a mobile format for ios so Mm -hmm. you whatever i what and it syncs with my desktop so whatever i write on scrivener on my desktop is on my um ipad is on my laptop all i have to do is access it Yeah. yeah okay you find yourself stumped on a scene who do you call or what do you do? Oh, it depends on the scene. Um, like if I'm having an issue with a sex scene, I'm calling Naima Simone. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> That's a good person to call. That's a phone a friend you want. <laughs> yeah, he, is. Yeah. he is absolutely fantabulous at writing sex scenes, writing high emotion, high heat. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I try very hard to make my sex scenes high emotion, high heat. Um, and so if I'm like, okay, I don't know if this works or not, does this make sense to you? She'll give it a read for me. And she's like, you know, she'll, she'll either give me tips or tell me it's fine the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, being able to, to call her phone a friend, as you say, like that is, that's who I'm reaching out to for if I'm having mm-hmm. issues with texting. few backlist questions. Mm-hmm. Which book from your backlist do you remember laughing the most while writing? I loved a lot about betting the enemy because mm-hmm. not just because it's high heat, but it's high emotion. And these two people, at least the heroine is trying so hard not to be in love with the hero that she is like doing really silly things to, that end up hurting her and because all because she can't admit she's in love with this man. And so you know, the way they, you know, they, they, they have this big argument and he's calling her out on her nonsense. And it's just hilarious because I could definitely hear my husband talking crap like that to me. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to do that. Like, you know, I I have, you know, I don't have time for all of that. I got to get the job done. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of how Oshun is, but she's so unaware of her own (laughs) emotional state. (laughs) that she doesn't even realize how how much she's fallen in love with him. Like he knows it, but she doesn't. And I yeah. find that hilarious. 
Which book from your backlist was the toughest to write? The The toughest book I've ever had to write was book four in the Queens of Kings series, which is Power, Privilege, and Pleasure. And the reason I was having a problem with the book is not because of the, the story itself, it's that my the usual editor I was working with, um, I, I, I don't know if she was no longer working with the house. It's been a while now, so I don't remember exactly the circumstances. But whatever the circumstances, she was not assigned to me as my editor. And the person who was assigned to me, I had some deep-seated issues with some of her perspectives about um, the Confederacy mm-hmm. and, right. and her love of the Confederate flag. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. And I remember like really stressing out and not being able to write because I was stressing myself out at having mm-hmm. to basically prepare myself for what I thought was going to be war walking in to edit with this person. Yeah. And it eventually just got to the point where I had to call my publisher and, and tell her, listen, I can't work with this person. Like, mm-hmm. I refuse. And um, she said, fine, we'll get you someone else. And as soon as she assigned me someone else, I was able to, to put that book out. I literally wrote that book in four weeks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Is there a book in your backlist that you feel readers have reached out to you about the most? It's between Lies You Tell, Heart of the Matter, and betting the enemy. Those are the two, those are the three books that I get the most questions about or the most commentary about. Mm-hmm. Um, readers just, they have a lot to say about those particular stories. Mm-hmm. Is there a book in your backlist that you feel taught you something about yourself as a writer? Lies You Tell, because Lies You Tell is a secret baby story, and I absolutely despise secret baby <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I despise secret baby stories because most of the time. Because, I mean, you said you would phone Naima Simone. I feel like when we talk to her, that's like one of her favorite. (laughs) She she understands how to do it well. My issue with secret baby stories is that sometimes authors come up with really trivial reasons Mm -hmm. for why the heroine doesn't let this man know. That they have a kid. Yeah. 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 And sometimes, you know, the kid is like five, six years old and, you know, she's never even attempted to, to yeah. look for him. It's just, well, he didn't want me. He rejected me. And so he doesn't deserve to know about his kid. And that's kind of jacked up. Like as a, mm-hmm. as a parent and, you know, as a, a mother who loves to watch her sons with, with their father, like my husband is an amazing dad. And like if someone had ever done something like that to him, I'd be ready to fight. <laughs> I really would. So it it's, you know, it's okay as a trope, but I think you have to come up with a, a real reason why that is yeah. significant enough that it justifies mm-hmm. her keeping the secret. And so, and lies you tell, um, the reason he doesn't know he has a child is because his father is a mobster and his girlfriend is not aware of it at that time. And there is another, there's someone from another mobster faction who wants her out of the way to get to the hero as the Don's son. And so when they attempt to kill her, 
they actually, it's a case of mistaken identity and they end up killing her friend. And his friend actually finds out about this and he secrets her away, takes her out of Florida, Mm -hmm. takes her up to, to Brooklyn. She doesn't know she's pregnant when she leaves. So by the time she does discover she's pregnant, she can't go back home. Yeah. Because mm. if she does, this woman is going to know she's not dead and is going to try to kill her again. So, and the way that that the woman attempted to kill her, it was very personal. She made it seem as though she and the hero Dante were having some sort of an affair and that the heroine is standing in the way of that. That wasn't the case at all, but that's how she that's how she presents it. And so after going through that, she doesn't feel like, okay, I can't risk my life and my child, my unborn child's life just to let him know this. Right. This yeah. is you mm-hmm. know, a life or death situation. So that's why, you know, I hate secret babies. And that's why I wrote um, Lies You Tell, because I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that I could do it without it being a really flimsy excuse. Yeah, what I can what I considered a flimsy excuse for, you know, the heroine not sharing the fact that they had a child. Like, if if you think he if you don't want him to be, you know, for whatever reason you feel like he doesn't need to be in the child's life, you tell him that, but let him know yeah. he has a child and give him the opportunity to say to you, "I don't want to be a father." That's right. not you shouldn't presume unless there's some sort of like safety issue involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything else is really a really poor excuse. So that was my opportunity to sort of flex my writing muscles and come up with a good enough, what I felt was a good enough reason for a woman to keep a child Mm -hmm. away from um, her lover. Which book in your backlist did you have the most research? Did you do the most research to write? I don't think I've had to necessarily um, research a lot Mm -hmm. for my, my, what's on my backlist what's coming i i am in the process of possibly selling a harlem renaissance story it's a gay romance series based in the harlem renaissance oh wow oh, yes please that's like my favorite historical i was gonna say that's time your cabinet period. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't see it that much yes please <laughs> put that into the ether that people will want to buy it because uh, we're going we're we're putting it out there soon but that's awesome um it's for that i'm gonna have to do a mm-hmm. lot of research so being that the Harlem Renaissance is something you love. I will be tapping you. I will be nudging you for any information. <laughs> uh, because I'm going to need all the help I can get. <laughs> I am here. I'm here just saying. <laughs> um, is there a book in your backlist with a character or scene that still comes across your mind? Um, yes, lies you tell. When Dante discovers that she's not dead. Okay. <laughs> He doesn't like he believes she's died um and for six years like he was all in love with this girl and he the body that actually the body isn't hers but the the body is burned like there's a a house fire Mm -hmm. and so the body is burned beyond recognition and the only thing they could retrieve was this locket that he had given her and that's how they identified the body 
And so he has believed all these years that his, his love of his life was dead. Yeah. And he, through happenstance, comes to New York to visit a friend whose son was in a car accident. And she's working in the hospital that mm. the son is being treated at. And she sees him and he sees her and she runs from him. And so he's like, I have to make sure that this is like, it can't be who I think it is. So he kind of basically stalks her at the hospital, like sits around the hospital until he sees this woman that looks like her um, leaving and follows her home and realizes that she is living with an old family friend of his Mm. and, you know, confronts her. And he, of course, he's exceptionally angry when he meet, when he sees her. He's demanding all sorts of answers. He's angry. And, you know, as a sister, she got attitude problems. So, <laughs> you know, he rolls up on her the wrong way. And she's like, hold up, hold up. Who do you think you are? Don't come for me like that. And they get into this back and forth argument. And he, like, he really goes in in this scene where he basically just breaks down and he's like, you know, she asks him something to the effect of what gives you the right. And he's like, the fact that I, I laid at your grave for six months after you died Mm. because I I needed to be physically close to you. Oh my God. You know, the fact that everything inside me died with you. Like you let me believe this for six damn years. Yes. That I have the right. I expect answers. And mm-hmm. that was just like pro- probably one of the most powerfully emotional scenes that I've ever written. Wow. Yeah. Is there a book in your backlist that you were nervous about releasing? I don't think I was nervous about releasing any of them in the past. I was actually a little bit nervous about releasing um, a very intimate takeover. Okay. Ooh. And, um, because I I put a lot of like Brooklyn and black culture in it and I wasn't, and it was intentionally done because mm-hmm. I was trying to prove a point. I'm a little confrontational like that. Um, <laughs> trying to prove a point. And so I, this was an opportunity for me to basically pour as much of my personal experience into a book as possible. And um, I, after reading it, I knew it was a, a, a good book. I knew I'd you know, done the best job that I could do. Mm-hmm. But I was concerned that maybe there were things in the book that readers who were not familiar with Brooklyn who were not familiar with black culture that might not be able to understand some things and um Charles in his wonderful wisdom he said (laughs) calm your nerves it's fine (laughs) it's a universal book which Mm -hmm. it is um and you know it's it's not anything that I can see that people will be like, oh, I'm, you know, pulled out of the book because I don't understand this one thing. Is there a backlist title that has char- side characters that you've maybe considered, like, maybe I should give this person their own book? So the Queens of King series is a five book series that really I only ever want it to be um, three. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> and there's a novella attached to it too. But... Other characters, side characters, characters got books because readers were like, please, we want to know what happens <laughs> with these people. And so um, I, I've had people tell me that about Lies You Tell as well, but I, I just couldn't. I was like, we're not going to start this over again. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I just can't. I'm sorry. I can't. I've moved on. 
Which book in your backlist took you the longest to write? I'd have to say my beginning because I, that prob- book probably took me years. Yeah. That and Heart of the Matter, because Heart of the Matter, I literally wrote as like um, General Hospital fanfic. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> General Hospital at the time when I wrote, when I originally wrote Heart of the Matter, I was probably like 18 years old when this happened, 18 or 19 years old. They had a storyline with the two quarter main boys, AJ and Jason, who were both who were both vying for the romantic attention of the, the new black girl on the show, Keisha Ward. And I was just tickled pink because this this girl's name was Keisha. I knew Keisha's. <laughs> and I'm like, these are people that I actually know, right? And the Quartermains, who are the richest people in the land, and they own everything, including the hospital. Um, <laughs> they, like, they the Quartermain boys are like, I got to give me some of Keisha. <laughs> so, so it was really a um like I think it was the first time that I saw like in a mainstream um meet in a in a mainstream medium where this where this black woman was the the object not of you know just of their desire and that hadn't been like that had never really been done before with any of at least while I was old enough to remember maybe prior to it but while I was old enough to remember watching that show, I they had another black character, but it was, you know, she was, um, I think her name was Simone Hardy and she was a doctor. And Simone never really felt like, like I knew her or like they knew what to do with her. She didn't really have a personality mm-hmm. as to where Keisha did. And so that idea of everybody in, you know, everybody on the show wanting Keisha was like oh my god like I need to write that like that's amazing and I wrote Heart of the Matter which was really like 300 pages of dialogue when I first (laughs) wrote it and it was all this man just from day one not liking her when he meets her but being so drawn to her that he can't help it and they end up having this very codependent relationship that turns in in a good way that turns into love. Are you ready for some round out questions? Sure. What is one book you wish you could read again for the first time? Oh, um, Welcome to Rosebend. By oh. oh, yeah. That book, that book broke me. I, I was texting that child while I was reading it. <laughs> and I was like, I'm really upset with you. Like, I've been on this couch all day long you know, reading this book, my baby just asked me to do homework with him. I got an attitude with him because he's interrupting my book time. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me like, I'm, I'm questioning like, my mother decisions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like this is, and and I li- I cried at the end of that book when the mm. hero has his breakdown. I, I like, I was like, damn it, Naima. <laughs> That book I would love to read again for the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us about one of your under the bed stories, something you've written that will never see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a sleepy hollow. Yes. We were chatting about this on Twitter. <laughs> Me too. I am an, a sleepy hollow addict. And like one of the things I actually did during the pandemic, like I got into a real funk 
And the only thing that would bring me out is I would watch Sleepy Hollow every night. And my husband was like, how many times are you going to watch this, the first three seasons? Because you know the fourth season doesn't exist. It does so, not count. <laughs> so he's like, how many times are you going to watch this? You know how this ends. I wouldn't care. It makes me feel good to see them together. Mm-hmm. So I have always been angry, as most of us who love the show, how they ended Abby's storyline on the show. The fact that they never allowed... Abby and Ichabod to get together because quite frankly, it was obvious to anyone watching that they were both in love with each other, especially him to her. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it, I was like, I just, because I never, you know, Lucifer did their fans right. Right. They gave us the resolution that, that we needed that worked a bittersweet resolution for their characters Sleepy Hollow fans never got that sort of closure. And so mm-hmm. I have this um, this man out of time story in my head that's quasi paranormal that I am like, I have to write at some point. I don't know if I'm- Yes, you do, please. <laughs> please, Madam LaQuette. It's basically Sleepy Hollow fanfic. Um, nice. Wrapped, <laughs> wrapped in ancient black culture. And I am just like, I want to do it, but- I don't know if there's, I just don't know anything about the paranormal market to know if it's anything I'll ever be able to sell, but it might just end up being a passion project. Cause I really mm-hmm. like have invested in this story and have been doing all sorts of research for that time period to be able to tell it. Yeah. I, I remember that like weird third season and then Abby was gone and I don't, I never like really looked into it. I was like, did she leave because she wanted more money? Like what happened? And I'm like, as an actress, you leave the show and then it becomes awful. Yeah. <laughs> like sit back and laugh. Like yeah, I suck because I'm gone. I'm like, she really, I mean, that whole show, it where could you go without her? Like that fourth season was awful i just now watched the fourth season this year this was the first time i ever said the show's been off the air for four years i just now watched it and it was terrible because it was obvious that the showrunners believed that ichabod was the star of that show Mm -hmm. what they didn't recognize is that we loved ichabod with abby abby Mm -hmm. made him as alluring as he was Um, and so, and it was their connection. The fact that like, I will never forget watching, I think this was the, I want to say the first season, the end of the first season where Abby has to go to purgatory and Crane doesn't want to leave her there, but she's like, no, this is what's supposed to happen. And there's this thing where he's, he's hugging her and, and his wife is like in the the background of the scene watching them, right? Oh, Katrina. Yeah. And she's he's hugging, like he's got Abby pressed to his chest. He's stroking her head and he's whispering in her ear, like, remember our bond. I'll come back for you. I looked at my husband. I said, I wish I would be standing in a room <laughs> on the sidelines and you hugged up on some chick like that. Like, you know what? So it was so obvious in that scene that he was in love with her or that there should have been some sort of movement to build toward a love relationship mm-hmm. if they had already brought, since they had already brought the wife in. I do believe, and you know, this is just my personal belief because I've yes spent a lot of time thinking about this. 
is. <laughs> I do believe if you watch um, the way since season two ended and some of the episodes, mo- most of the buildup in season three, I do believe that they were writing, they were eventually writing them to get together. I, yeah. It is my assumption that, my speculation that whatever was going on behind the scenes with the actress and the showrunners blew all of that up. And by the yeah. time they got to the end of season three, you know, Nicole Bahari was like, deuces, I'm out. Ain't gonna be no Abby and Ichabod because I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> and they knew better than to try to replace her, like keep Abby and replace her. Because as much as we tried to burn it down when she left, if they had re- replaced her with anyone else and try and let Ichabod get with that next person, it would have been a wrap. It wasn't going to work, yeah. (laughs) But that's just my theory. (laughs) I agree with your theory. (laughs) Okay, so this may be Naima Simone, but we're going to (laughs) ask, what's the romance that you've read within the past few years that reminded you of why you love the genre? Recently, I read Saint by Sierra Simone. Mm, Yes. I I asked her for that book three years ago, and in my head, she wrote it for me. (laughs) (laughs) I like that I like it Mm -hmm. in my head she wrote it for me and that book was so angsty and so just delicious and I remember it took me days to process it after finishing it before I could text her and be like listen like I'm I'm stumped. I can't even tell you why I love this book so much. It's it was such an amazing story. Such a beautiful, it's a beautifully painful story. Like there's so much yeah. pain there, mm-hmm. but the the especially at the 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 climax and the black moment. Like I could see the black moment happening, even though the the main character couldn't, and. When it finally happens, I'm like, oh my God, like it broke me. Like, I, again, I was crying over that book too. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a book that is just like, whew, like it's an experience. You're not even just reading. Like that is an experience. That's how I felt when I read Priest. I was like, she yes. is so good. <laughs> this is tough. This is hard to read and it's so good. I t- that entire series is amazing. And I'm in her inbox right now. Like, girl. When are we getting Baby Bell's story? I want to know what's going on with him. She's like, you just finished Show Center. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, but you, you, like the characters are so well-developed and you're so invested in them, right? Mm-hmm. That, and then she's, you know, she, <clears throat> if you've ever, because I know Sierra Simone, like I can, I can hear her in her stories because her characters have her, share her sense of humor. And, to, you know, that, and that's another reason why I enjoy it. Cause she has this really brilliant sense of like snarky humor, um, and self-deprecating humor. And it's lovely to read when she puts it in her characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, that book is an experience. That entire series is an experience. Go read it. <laughs> Who was your teenage celebrity crush? <laughs> Michael Jackson. Nice. <laughs> love it we've had michael jackson pop up as an answer once Mm -hmm. other than this no question i thought i was gonna marry that (laughs) name one film you will never stop watching one film i will never stop watching wonder woman oh yes i'm watching 
never. Yeah. It's always new to me when I put it on. What is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? That the Thorn Birds was a romance. I don't care that it didn't technically end with a happily ever after. In my head, they got together and lived happily ever after. <laughs> it's like my mother's favorite book, and she keeps telling me to read it, and I finally bought a copy. I really need to get around to it. It's good. It's. I will say that the miniseries television adaptation is very close to what's in the book. Like, there's okay. more in the book, because you can't possibly put all of that mm-hmm. on on screen. But it's very closely adapted to the book. That book, I'd seen this, this, this miniseries first as a child. I should not have been watching that, but my mama let me watch it anyway. <laughs> and, um, and I fell in love with it. I didn't know why, but I absolutely mm-hmm. fell in love with it. And every time, you know, because on ABC, they would rerun these miniseries like once a year. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> every time it came <laughs> on, I would watch it. And um, as an adult, I was working. And, and one night I went to... Um, I went to go into the ICU to treat a patient to do my rounds. And there was this little like um, family room off of the, off the side of the unit that they had like a little free library that anybody could go in and kind of take Mm -hmm. a book, leave a book or what have you. And I saw the thorn birds there. So I picked it up and I, that book is thick. Mm -hmm. I read it probably in a couple of days. That book was. Wow. Okay, so we know that this is not Secret Baby. What is one of your favorite romance tropes to read? Forced proximity. It's my favorite. Nice. Right. Like all my books have forced proximity in all of them. Tough love. What's been one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever been given? I I am I have been very blessed in my career to get people who really know the business who understand my goals and have been willing to attempt to help me reach them. And I don't think I've necessarily uh, had any tough pills to swallow yet. Thank goodness. Thank God. Knock wood. I have been very fortunate in, in carefully making decisions that impact my career. So mm-hmm. I've had to walk away from some deals because I knew they weren't right for me. And, you know, when you think about, oh, you know, that's, you know, that's a, an opportunity that could have possibly done, you know, possibly yielded some really nice results. Um, you know, of course, it's, it's hard to, to lose an opportunity. But mm-hmm. for me, it's more about staying true to who I am in my work. And so even if the opportunity is a good one, if I if the integrity of my work changes is has to change in order to fit that mold, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. So um, that has been the toughest things for me, like knowing, not having a clear understanding of who my what my voice is, and not trying and refusing to compromise it. Fifteen years from now, you're writing your memoir. What's the title? <laughs> she tried. and it it really is because that's that's my whole goal um Mm -hmm. with my writing is to push barriers so that i can normalize i can contribute to the normalization of black joy and um that's you know it sounds like like something that really shouldn't be that confrontational or um 
or that controversial, mm-hmm. but it really isn't um, normalized as it should be. And mm-hmm. so I am going to write as many happy black people in my books as I possibly can. And that is what I bring to the genre. So is there anything that you can share with us about book two in the Devereaux Inc. series, but also, Madam LaQuette, <laughs> what's up with this Texas Cattlemen's Club? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. Um, first, the book two in Devereaux Inc. comes out on my birthday, November 30th. I don't know who told Harlequin I want to work on my birthday, but, you know, <laughs> there you go. Um, but it's um, it's basically a woman who is a widow. She's a widow. She um, married into the Devereaux family at a very young age. She was 20 years old and her husband was 20 years older than she was. Okay. And so she has basically lived like the princess in the ivory tower um, during her 20 year marriage. And in the two years that her husband has been gone, Lyric has basically learned to be the, she's in the process of becoming the woman she wants to be has always wanted to be. And she's developed this sort of lifestyle brand um, as an influencer on like YouTube and Instagram. And she's doing quite well for herself, Um, even though, of course, she's an heiress because she has all that money from her husband's estate. She always has had the need to do something for herself that didn't have anything to do with the Devereaux. Mm -hmm. And so she's decided... um, She's gotten the opportunity to do a sort of like beauty product line and hair care line. And because her ex-mother-in-law is, you know, problematic, she snatches the opportunity away from Lyric, which leaves her in the lurch. Mm -hmm. And she meets this young man by the name of Josiah, who is a television producer, um, executive producer and daytime executive producer. And he is um, in the process of trying to become basically the president of like NBC or ABC or something like that. And the only thing that he has to do to be able to do it is create a killer line lineup for a daytime lineup. And he needs a show that can go up against the view in that time slot. Mm -hmm. And he thinks the hostess for that show is going to be Lyric. Um, but she wants no parts of it. And so in order to get her backing for her hair care line, she has to agree to work with him for a year um, for the first season of the show if it gets picked up. The only problem is they're really attracted to each other mm-hmm. and the hero has a hard and fast rule about not sleeping with people that he's worked with because he's had bad things happen to him in the past. That can cause some issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. They have some serious <laughs> issues that they have to deal with. He has a lot of trust issues because of his past um, past relationship. And he has to, you know, he has a problem getting through those things. But he and Lyric, you know, eventually they work it out, of course. But um, it's, it's lovely because we get to see them go to the Emmys at the Barclays Center. Nice. We get to... Um, we get to see her basically, we get to see Trey and Jeremiah's wedding in this book. Um, you know, we get to see just 
her really blossom, lyric really blossoming into the woman that she was always meant to be. And lastly, where can everyone follow you online? Um, they can follow me at um, on Facebook. It's at Laquette Writes. On Twitter, it's at Laquette Writes. On IG, it's La underscore Quet. And if you want to email me, you can email me at laquette at laquette.com. And my website is laquette.com. You asked me about the Texas Cattlemen's Club. Oh, yes. The Texas Cattlemen's Club, there are two. So one I'm actually writing right now that's coming out next year. And then I just signed a contract for one where I'm writing in Reese Ryan's world. So last, I think last Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Reese Ryan had a book come out called um, His Until Midnight. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those two characters in that book are getting married and everyone's coming back. The series is based on the fact that everyone is coming back to Royal for that wedding. So for I'm the wedding. Really oh, that's awesome. I'm really excited to uh, be a part of that. Cause I absolutely adore that book and I adore Reese cause she's wonderful. Oh my gosh. Well, we are so excited for everything absolutely. that you have coming out. We're just like totally rooting for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Listeners, make sure you check the show notes. Everywhere where you can follow, Madam Laquette will be listed below. <laughs> I am going to play this on Rewind in my house. No one, absolutely no one in this house gives me that sort of recognition. I greatly yes. appreciate it. You deserve it. <laughs> absolutely. And make sure that y'all check it again in the show notes. We'll have links to where you can get a very intimate takeover because mm-hmm. you absolutely need to read <laughs> Trey and Jeremiah's romance. It's yep. incredible. And just brace yourself for the character that is Martha. That's all that I'm going to say. <laughs> this Martha was a mess. <laughs> so yes, have a lovely day, everybody. Sarah and I will chat with you in our next episode. <laughs>